Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. I'm excited to open the Word with you this morning and invite you to do so to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Um, As you turn there, I want to ask you an existential question. And it's this, do you matter? Uh, Do you matter? Like, do, do you personally, this, us as a human race, do we do we matter? Is there any significance to us in our lives in all of this? Um, Anthony Hopkins is an 83-year-old actor. Last year, or I guess it was this year, he won an Oscar for Best Actor in the film The Father uh, as he played an elderly man who was fighting a battle against dementia. Um, Anthony Hopkins has won multiple Oscars He's rich, he's famous, he's been knighted by Queen Elizabeth, he's married to a Colombian even. Um, I think most of us would say, Anthony Hopkins, like, this guy matters. His life matters, right? And yet he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. He was interviewed shortly after his Oscar victory this year, and he had this to say as he reflected on the meaning of life. The sadness of life is that we go on. We're born in this world, and at the end we leave, and you think, what was that all about? In my life, and at the end of it all, I don't know, what is it all about? Is there meaning in it? So what makes me really happy is feeling that nothing is of that much importance. We're pretty insignificant little specks in our vast universe. Life is important only because we choose to make it so. And that's the freedom I have, free from worrying about this, that, and the other, you know, being significant and all that stuff. But there's finally nothing to prove, nothing to win, nothing to lose, no sweat, no big deal, and that's my philosophy. Ask nothing, expect nothing, and accept everything. That's it. Enjoy it. Just do it. You can either do it or you can't, and if you can't, it doesn't matter. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Who cares? He's framing what life is like in a godless universe. I don't know. I, I don't find that very freeing, actually. Um, I find that really oppressive, really depressing, really sad, and frankly, uh, about the scariest thing I can imagine, that my life has no meaning, that I and this doesn't matter, that this is just brain chemistry tricking us into thinking there's something to all of this. You and I, in size, are what he says, a mere speck on a speck in our universe. We are that, but we are not a mere speck in God's heart. Isn't that what the scriptures teach us? That we matter to our God that we matter 
to God's world. This passage is a really famous passage. It's like a greatest hit in the New Testament. It's the Great Commission. Uh, and in it, it's Jesus' famous last words to his disciples, at least in the book of Matthew, before he ascends to heaven and goes to sit at the right hand of God the Father to reign over the universe from heaven until he returns again. And the message, he says it loud and clear, you, you matter, and you matter to God's world. It's also one of our behold statements. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and I will read God's word, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Please be seated. Lord Jesus, thank you for this message. Um, we want to experience it right now by your Holy Spirit. We want to be changed by it. And that's not going to happen unless you show up. So would you be with us right now as we look to your word and nourish us by it? In your name we pray. Amen. So do you matter? This, all of this, is there any significance to it? Well, what you just heard me read says, yes, you matter. This message of Emmanuel that we just sang together, Emmanuel, God with us, screams loud and clear to the entire universe that you and I matter to God. We really do. Anthony Hopkins' words, that way of thinking about the world is growing in popularity. It's interesting to see in history. It actually reminded me of something I saw this week from a Japanese poet from the 12th century. This was his poem. God's here? Who can know? Not I. Yet I sigh and tears flow, tear on tear. He's being really honest. Anthony Hopkins is being intellectually honest. If there is no God in the universe, or if the God who is in the universe is a distant God, unconcerned with regular people like you and me, then there is great cause for weeping and fear and despair. But when Jesus comes at Christmas, he says, what to the universe? I'm with you, and you matter. And when Jesus leaves his disciples to go to heaven, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You'll never be alone because you matter to me. You'll never be alone. I want to show you a picture of uh, a pretty weird thing. This is actually a picture of the famous Claymont Christmas weed, which used to live on a main highway in Delaware, growing up through the cracks of a highway. The story goes something like this. It was December 16th, 1993. And somebody, I guess, all hyped up on the Christmas spirit or something like that, decided they were going to decorate this thing with some gold and garland and some Christmas bulbs. 
And soon enough, people started to notice, and they thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And soon enough, a local photographer took a picture of this, and I guess it was a pretty slow news day because the next day on the front page of that local newspaper was this with the title, Oh Christmas Weed, as in, Oh Christmas Weed, Oh Christmas, I guess, I don't know, I have no idea. (laughs) The Christmas Weed uh, went viral as best something can in the early 90s. Everyone noticed it, everyone loved it, except the Department of Transportation. Those Scrooges looked at the Christmas weed and said, that's not something to celebrate, that's something to snuff out, that's a hazard. What if that causes a wreck? And so they went promptly and cut it down. And they sparked an outrage, a yuletide throwdown between them and the public. And so people came and they replaced it, and then they came and they took it away, and they replaced it and they took it away. Eight different times that happened until finally a peace deal was struck and they said, okay, let's protect this thing and let's actually celebrate this Christmas weed growing out of the cracks of a highway. And so if you go to this little town today, you'll find a parade. 75 different floats registered, fire trucks. Santa Claus himself is there at this parade. People come from all over the region, marching bands, cheerleaders, and they all unite and sing to the Christmas weed its song on a concrete island by an overpass. A crack appears, then a blade of grass. The wind blew up and bore a seed, and in that crack there grew a weed. Oh, Christmas weed. I have no idea if it goes like that. But they really do have a song, and they celebrate that thing. That's a really weird thing to celebrate, but you know what? That Christmas weed matters to that community, And you and I, we matter to our God. We really do. Why? I have no idea. Neither did David when he wrote Psalm 8. Listen to what he says. I mean, this is like blasting out over our origin story as humans. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, can you, can you picture it? When I look up and say, wow, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. David is saying, I don't get it. You, that is so big, and we, us, we are so small. What is humanity that you care for, for us? Anthony Hopkins believes that nothing really matters. And if you want to matter, well, and and if you want to matter like in a relative sense and just for a a short time while you're still alive, then you're going to actually have to make meaning for yourself. And he says that's really freeing. That should be freeing to you. Um, that feels about like a supermodel walking into the room and telling us all not to worry about our external experience, uh, appearance because what really matters is the beauty that's on the inside. That's easy for Anthony Hopkins to say, one of the more famous people in our world. I wonder if he would say the same thing, that it's freeing to have to make your own meaning if he were living in the slums of Mumbai. Or I wonder if he were a hated person, an overlooked person in this world, totally obscure, having to fight, scratch, claw, to make some meaning out of his life, if he would say, oh yeah, that's really 
freeing. No, it would be slavery. This is why I'm really thankful that the Bible is clear about meaning. You and I don't have to make our own meaning. We don't have to make our own significance. God gives it to us. He just gives it to us. We may look like a Christmas weed compared to the rest of the universe, yet God has made us with dynamic dignity. Dynamic dignity. It's amazing. And even though as the Bible goes on and you see how humanity has violated that dynamic dignity, rebelling against God, rejecting God, betraying God, God does not give up on us. I mean, how many times do you have to read in the Old Testament the way God's people betrayed him, the way they went after other gods, or the way they were selfish, the way they chose bitterness instead of joy? How many times this week have I done the same thing, and have you done the same thing? And yet the clear message of the Bible is that God doesn't give up on us. Don't you dare cut down that weed That's mine. They belong to me. They belong with me, and I belong with them. I want to be with them. God is with us. The way that story plays out in in the Bible is God is with us, starting in the garden, and then in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, and it all crescendos beautifully into Jesus, God, who puts on flesh and blood to come and live among us, to live for us, to adorn our prickly branches with his righteousness and goodness and beauty, and to take away all of our badness and sadness and shame through his death on the cross. Why? Because we matter to him. Because he loves us. He really loves us. I don't know where you are um, spiritually. Maybe you resonate with Anthony Hopkins. A lot of people do today. Um, But if you are wrestling with this idea of, do I matter? Does my life matter? Do I have any purpose or value? I want you to know that the God of the universe is the answer to your cosmic longing for significance. And all you need to do to receive him experience a moment of honesty. All you need is need. God, I'm a mess. I mean, I am a mess. I got all kinds of issues. Would you, somebody like you, want to be with somebody like me? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Do you matter? Yes. You matter to your God. God gives us meaning by creating us. God gives us meaning by redeeming us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And God gives us meaning by making us a part of his world-altering, eternity-shaping mission. In other words, you not only matter to God, but you matter to God's world because you're on God's mission to save his world. We not only have identity of belonging to God, but we have a trajectory. We're going somewhere. We've got something to do, and that's really important to the human experience. Study after study for the last few decades have said that the goal of life, listen to me, this is radical, 
The goal of life is not to get enough stuff so you can just retire and stop working one day. That's not the goal of the human story, is to just stop producing something. I read it again this week. Senior citizens with a sense of purpose in their life are less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment, disabilities, heart attacks, strokes, and are more likely to live longer than people without this kind of underlying motivation. Why is that? It's because God designed us to work, to produce something, to be about more than just ourselves and our experience. We thrive, we flourish when we do. And whether that's going to work nine to five, or it's volunteering somewhere, or it's tutoring a child, or it's raising children or grandchildren or gardening, whatever it is, we, you and I, were designed to do, to give ourselves away in work, to be on mission. Before the fall, Genesis chapter 3, and so before sin, God made us to work. That means work is not inherently sinful. It's not. He created us with all that dynamic dignity, and then he gave us a job. What was that job? Genesis 1 tells us, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over my world, my stuff. In other words, multiply my image throughout my world. That's our purpose. That's our trajectory. That's our work as human beings, right? To fill the world with the image of God. Jesus, as he is leaving his disciples, says the same thing. Isn't that what making disciples is all about? Here's the image of Jesus. Here are people who reflect the image of Jesus. Let's multiply that. Let's spread that all over God's world. It's the same mission. The Bible is one story, same purpose you and I have. Fill God's earth with God's image. And I know what you're thinking right now. All right, Andrew, you're talking about pastor stuff, like missionary stuff. How is somebody like me going to do something like that? How's somebody like me going to make disciples? I like this passage because it, it, it makes me wonder if the disciples were wondering the same thing. Did you see what happened? Uh, they meet with Jesus, and Jesus is commissioning them to this mission. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Huh. So you mean like these church fathers, disciples, the apostles, they had this mixed up feeling of like worship and doubt and joy and fear, kind of like me? And how does Jesus respond to them? Hey guys, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Here's some good news for you. The Father has given me all of the power for the mission I've got it. It's who I am. And I am with you in this mission. And they would learn shortly that that was being with them through the Holy Spirit. But I am with you in this mission. So it is the great commission, but it's the great co-mission that we are doing hand in hand with Jesus. Or rather, Jesus is doing through us to make disciples, to multiply God's image in God's world. That's really, really beautiful and cool. And yet we are still like, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I'm just a regular person. So I want to take just a few moments to try to declaw what you may be feeling about the mission of God, okay? First, I mean, it starts with a nerd alert. 
I'm sorry, this is not like super duper nerdy, like you have to be a Greek scholar, because you can see this in your study Bible, if you read the notes there, um, how the verbs in this passage work. Uh, the way Greek works in other languages too uh, is, is you'll have a main verb and then you'll have some participles. Here's the main verb. It's like the main thing of the passage. In this case, it's a command. And here are the participles that tell you all about that command, okay? So the main verb, the command is make disciples. The participles go like this. So in your going, make disciples. How? Baptizing, teaching. Okay, you're still not helping me, Andrew, because it just made, did you just say I have to become like an expert goer, baptizer, and teacher? I, I don't know if I can do that. And so most of us stop there, and we say, you know, we're going to leave that up to the professional Christians and missionaries. They'll do that. I get it. It's just not healthy, and it's certainly not biblical. All of us, if Jesus has redeemed you, all of us are called to be in this disciple-making mission of God. And so here's what happened to me a couple weeks ago. I'm sitting in a conference room with a bunch of other international pastors in Paris. One of the guys, Bill, gets up to teach his seminar, and uh, it hit me. He said, hey, everybody, what's the main verb in this passage? And we're all geeks, so we're all like, oh, it's make disciples. And he's like, great, what's the other main verb? And we're like, uh, there's another one? There's another one. Behold, there's the other command. And it struck me, oh my goodness, Andrew, there is this massive connection between making disciples and beholding Jesus and that Jesus is with you. Actually, that just might be the key to making disciples. That you're not going to make disciples if you've never seen and experienced Jesus and his love for you. In other words, your ability to share the love of God and make disciples, to urge the nations and the next generation to follow Jesus is directly connected to your ability to experience the love of God for you through Jesus Christ yourself personally. So if you're not beholding Jesus, then you're not going to make disciples. If you're not awestruck, that the God of the universe loves somebody like you enough to put on flesh and blood, come live among you, pay for your sins, rise for you, ascend for you, rule over you, return for you. If you're not awestruck by that, you're not going to be able to make disciples effectively. We share with others around us what God has shared with us. I want to make that complex and then really simple. Here's the complex piece. Uh, the theologian I quoted last week, Michael Reeves, in his book, The Lighting in the Trinity, talks about this, um, this medieval Scotsman named Richard of St. Victor. Richard of St. Victor at some point moves to the, uh, outside the walls of Paris, France, or whatever it was called at that point, and he dedicates the rest of his life in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s to contemplating the Trinity, okay? So, God is one God, right, in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I know that sounds wild if you're new to Christianity. It does all fit together uh, beautifully. Okay, Richard, the Trinity, behold, 20 years, tell us what you learn. He becomes one of the most influential theologians of his day because he came up with this. This is what Michael Reeves 
how he describes him. If God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving, since for all eternity before creation, he would have had nobody to love. If there were two persons, God might be loving, but in an exclusive and ungenerous way. After all, when two, when two persons love each other, they can be so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everyone else around them. And suddenly, when you go to the shopping mall and you see the couple over there that seems like they're having a special moment and they don't realize that anyone else is around, like that makes sense, okay? You've seen what, I've, what I'm talking about, right? But when the love between two persons is happy, healthy, and secure, they rejoice to share it. Just so it is with God, being perfectly loving from all eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Spirit. It is not then that God becomes sharing. Being triune, God is sharing. He is a sharing God, a God who loves to include. Indeed, that is why God will go on to to create. His love is not for keeping, but for spreading The Father and the Son love each other so dynamically and beautifully, eternally, with the Holy Spirit mixed in there. They're sharing this love with each other. By nature, that love, because it is communal, is not exclusive, but it is inclusive. And the Trinity says to people like you and me, hey, come and look at this. Come and be a part of this. Behold the love of God with us. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit starts to woo hearts like my heart and your heart and show us how beautiful the love of God is and suddenly, oh, we've been made disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's how disciples are made and multiply. It's by sharing the love of God. It's by saying, Look, God loves me, and I don't understand it why, why, why it happens, but he just loves me. And here's the simple part, okay? Do you know what your most effective tool is in making disciples? It's your story. It's just your story. You don't have to be a master teacher, baptizer, or goer. Seriously, it's your story. Looking at Jesus and saying, whoa, I'm loved by Jesus, and telling people what that's about. Um, I messed up. Before I met Jesus, I was this self-infatuated, but also self-destructive, maniac, depressed, insecure, anxious, lost, trying to make meaning where I couldn't possibly make meaning. And then Jesus reached out and grabbed me and said, come into my loving relationship. Come into the love of the Holy Trinity. And it changed everything. So in the words of this sermon, with all of my issues, somehow somebody like me mattered to Jesus. And he is with me. And as we use this as our tool, we just tell our stories. We're saying, and you, he wants to be with you too. He would even die to accomplish that reality. Do you see how refreshing and easy and simple that is? Just sharing your reality, your experience with Jesus, with other people. Just tell your story. 
how God loves you and is with you in Jesus. You matter to God and you matter to God's world. That is why Jesus is with you. And that changes everything. That's why Christmas is so good and why it brings us such good news because it reminds us every year God is with us. We matter to him. He came to be with us. The incarnation changes everything. Uh, John Wesley is uh, the father of Methodism. Fascinating guy, revivalist preacher, English dude. Um, impacted the world. This guy mattered to God's world and the mission. People today still learn about his teachings, learn about God through his teachings. On the day he dies, he couldn't speak. I mean, he tried, and, and what came out was not intelligible. No one around him understood what he was saying. And it was kind of sad, because like, this is a guy who loved to speak about Jesus. And there he was dying, and he can't say anything. And then all of a sudden, he called out clearly, moments before he dies, the best of all is that God is with us. And then he raised his feeble arm like in a victory pose and said it again, the best of all is that God is with us. Friends, that is the best of all, isn't it? That God is with us. Let's ask for his help to be a people that proclaim that to the nations in the next generation. Lord Jesus, thank you for this message. You see our feeble hearts, you know our fears, our doubts, you know our struggles, our existential, uh, existential crises, the ways that we wrestle with meaning and significance and all this. And Jesus, would you just by your Holy Spirit move it all aside to remind us of this simple truth. We matter to you. You love us enough to come and to be with us. Would we be so overwhelmed by that good news that it overflows in the lives of the people around us? Not so that they would say, wow, what a great teacher, baptizer, whatever. So they would say, wow, that person is really loved by their God. I want some of that. That you would be magnified, Jesus, the nations and the next generation. This we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.